Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Hello and welcome to Greenwash with me, Jaspreet, and my co-host Don Nicholson. And we are very happy to have today Mark Warren with us. Mark is a farmer in Central Hawke's Bay. And he's someone who was lucky enough to meet last winter during one of his trips across the country. Welcome, Mark. Thank you very much. Thanks for the warm welcome. Uh, you have done so much from right from you know being the youngest. I believe you were among the youngest recipient of the Young Farmers for Hawks Bay in '92, to being a best-selling uh, author. Uh, yeah, no, it's correction there. I wasn't the Young Farmers winner. It was actually Hawks Bay Farmer of the Year. But I right. think I'm one of the very youngest to ever win that. But um, yeah, sadly, I wasn't around at the time. Well, yeah, I wasn't in the position to um, get very much involved in young farmers at that level. But yeah, you're very, very yeah, pretty close. Well done. So, <laughs> thank you. So you currently you are at you've been at Vapari Station now for nearly four decades, a Central Hawke's Bay station. Yeah, correct. Um, it's been in the family since the eighteen sort of eighties. Um, and uh, as a much wider land holding for my great-great-grandfather, Samuel Williams, who developed and, and, and um, backed a lot of people into stations and farming operations, including Williams and Kettle, back in the 1870s, 1880s. But it had never had an owner on it. I was actually born in a vicarage, or not in the vicarage, I was actually born in Timaru Hospital. Um, my father was a vicar, my grandfather was a bishop. Um, I come from quite a long line of uh, theological um, churchy type people unfortunately got to the point in the early 80s where the farm had been run down and probably not not particularly well overseen and, and um, uh, it got to the point where it's almost bankrupt and my grandfather who was a bishop said Mark you should go and see if you're going to save the family farm if you don't save it you've lost a family fortune um, so and that was all very well for him, uh, I was only 24 at the time um, and yeah, a bit of pressure there, but um, yeah, so I was sort of to tossed in the deep end a little bit. I was only 24, pretty green. And then um, that was the 1st of July, 1984. And then, of course, a couple of weeks later, Rogenomics, uh, Labour Party got in. Rogenomics came along. So it was a little bit of a baptism by fire, but um, what does it Talk tell about you? Talk timing. Well, that's what the chosen one has uh, done to them, of course. If you're the chosen one, you've got to front up. Sounds well, like you have. <laughs> I said that they'd spend a whole a couple of generations saving souls, but nobody got around to save any cash. But they were they were spending a fair bit of cash. But that's another story for another day. Yeah, well, you've certainly you've certainly uh, had a um, a fantastic history on the farm, and um, your evolution is legendary by the look of it. Uh, you know, what was the first? First sort of challenge, aside from having no money and interest rates going through the roof and uh, product prices being terrible, what, what was the first challenge that you really said you've beaten beaten back and you're on you're on track? Um, you mean when I took over the station yes, 84? Yes, yes. Well, it wasn't there was no money, but the farm had been run down pretty badly, uh, 56% lambing. It was just after the 83 drought, and that was pretty horrific. It was on the back of the... Um, livestock incentive scheme. So there are 8,000 very skinny ewes. In fact, we found later on there were 7,800 ewes and two or 300 weathers that had been marked as ewes to try and get the subsidies. 56% um, lambing, 
60% carbon. There were three stockproof paddocks from 3,000 odd acres. Uh, farm working expenses were 99% of gross farm income, and they hadn't even put on fertiliser, and they should be around 50, 55%. Um, and, uh, and then the, folks, the staff all went, they said, well, we can see what Mark's going to do. And I've probably got a reputation of being a pretty hard taskmaster. Um, and that's probably putting it politely. I think once upon a time that one of my stock managers turned up the local pub and uh, one of the old grizzlers was laying on the bar and said, oh, yeah, and where are you working? And uh, he said, oh, I'm on White Prairie for Mark Warren. Oh, why would you want to work for that bastard port? And the guy and my stockman says, oh, no, Mark's right. He doesn't put up, put up with bits at all. So, um, yeah, I stood on a few toes. Um, to be fair, you know, getting, go back to your question, getting the place stockproof and stopping the stock leaking to other, pe- other properties around us, which wasn't always coming back, was a big challenge. Um, taking on staff that I could work with and could see my vision was another challenge. Um, and, yeah, invariably, I'd found it was easy to do the job myself, so I'd probably work myself very good, but, yeah, that's another story. So, so just as a precursor to all of that, did you have another chosen career that you would have decided to do had you not been coerced into uh, into farming? Um, good question. No, right from the word go, when I was in, right from Timaru, I, with my mother at age three, my earliest memories of going down to the Mackenzie country, one of the Grampians, um, with Esther Hope, and then also down with the, to Halden with the Innes family, uh, and then up to Mount Cook Station, it's a bit later on. Um, I've always said my heart is the Mackenzie, but my wallet is in Hawke's Bay. Um, I'd always wanted to farm, and being based in Geraldine, I used to sort of wander along the road. Any likely-looking farmer with a Land Rover or a Bedford truck, i say, can I come and open gates for you for the day? And I'd only be five or six. So I learned to open gates and drive pretty quickly. I did, however, have option two. When I came, I always had a mechanical interest. When I came out of Lincoln, I spent 18 months as truck and diesel mechanic with um, Giltraps and Christchurch for the end Giltrap, and that was about great background as well. Um, always useful, but uh, no, I'd always wanted to be a farmer, but I think most farmers need two strings to their bow just in case you can't farm. Yeah, so uh, so aside from your sheep, you, when did you branch into the forestry aspect of your business? Was it sort of um, early on? Yeah, that was early in the very early 80s, 83, 84. We're actually, uh, we're actually the headwaters of the Mangakuri Stream, or actually not all of it, but um, the Mangakuri Stream comes out of Krakow Beach, and it's very erosion-prone in this country, and there was a scheme that they wanted to um, um, set up and, and, and uh, put up a good soil conservation program in the, in the headwaters of the Mangakuri Stream. Krakow Beach is a great little beach settlement with big lagoon, um, that's largely filled up with silt now. During the war, I was told that the Home Guard used to have a, um, a sentry box on top because they were worried about the um, uh, the jacks coming up in the submarines. Um, but over the years, um, it's silted up, and now you've got to be pretty clever to get, you know, it, it's sort of, um, well, even at high tide, you've got to be pretty clever to get over the bar in a jet, in a jet boat with two or three inches of water. Um, and so we realised something had to be done about that. Um, and we, I think we have. We've slowed the degradation down. It's interesting to note that further up the river, um, I've seen on one bank where there are three fences on top of each other. Um, in other words, that's how much it's filled up probably in 100 years. But in saying that, um, 
playing the devil's advocate, I sometimes argue that perhaps we should smash the hills down as fast as humanly possible, pull up all the gullies, and then we've got nice flat land. Um, because you get a whole lot of greening saying we should get room and it's off the hill country. So I think we should smash it all down um, so that we can have you know, nice, nice flat land and all grow lettuces and, and mung beans. So um, we've always got to see a counterpoint. You could, you could come and live in Southland or Canterbury Plains and you'd get that all for free. I mean, um, yeah. I'm, being, I'm being facetious too. Uh, yeah. yeah, interesting concept. Yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of things uh, that people outside your farm gate don't understand the sort of things you have to face. And erosion, it's not, it's not one thing that you would like to have uh, every, to face every day. I mean, I don't have to face it on my farm. Uh, I, I imagine it's uh, front and centre of your mind. Uh, most days you've got to manage your land so you minimise erosion-prone uh, land and, and, movement. And I probably never really asked the original question about the forestry. So we started on this um, erosion control plan in the early 80s, and we kept going right through. Well, we, we're planting continuously now. Um, back in the early 80s, 84, 85, 86, um, you know, there was a big plan to plant more trees. I remember the catchment board um, coming here on a field day, and, you know, those are the days when we were facing significantly greater interest builds. And we had a catchment board field day here, and I remember a good mate of mine, Sam Robinson, who was on the catchment board, Sam, who's on Silver Fern and a whole lot of other boards now. I, I stood at the top of the hill, I said, we're paying 23, 24% interest. I said, I reckon the trees are at best doing a 17% return on capital. And I said, there's a big hole in the middle that we can't finance. And, Sam said, MAT, you just got to keep doing it. And I'm very grateful that he did encourage me. Yes, there was a hole for a few years, but the planting of the trees on about, we're about 25% of our property now is of white trees and production forestry. Um, that has been a godsend. I don't think I'd be in business if I didn't have that forestry to back us up. Um, it's allowed us to pay off a lot of debt, allowed us to, um, you know, basically buy out other members of the family and other previous members so that we've got control of it for the next generation. And it's allowed us to do a lot of um, development on the better country and retire the rough stuff that's totally unproductive. But in saying that, we call the word productive, we've tended to think of that in terms of sheep and cattle or, and, 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 and wool or fibre and meat. But in actual fact, financially, Forestry is probably a much, much better return than than shed and cattle. So, you know, but we don't rely, we don't want to rely on one thing. We, any good investor likes to spread their risks. So, yeah. yeah there, there was, sorry, Jasper, there was many, uh, many other, um, oh, there was many periods in that uh, 80, 1980 to, to 10 years ago where forestry ebbed and flowed to a point where I, I had forestry as well, and I'd have neighbours say to me, oh, that was a waste of time, Don. Look, Al, you, you'd get a bill if you had to harvest that today. How did you get through those periods? I mean, my view is you don't have to cut a tree down until you want to. Is that how you've managed it? Yeah, absolutely right. You don't want to be in a position where you have to cut it down. Uh, luckily, trees are not like lambs where they cut their teeth and you're going to get them off before they drop in value. Yes, you've got to understand the productive production curve of a tree. Um, at the moment, we had a block of trees that we would have, and we paid to put the road in out of the farm cash flow three years ago. Uh, we've had to hold off and hold off and hold off. We'd like to get them out this year. 
I'm heartened by the fact that at the moment the forestry price is very low, and what we do know about forestry is that it's a great um, um, zigzag, what we call that, you know, it pendulums hugely. Um, the key is not being a position where you have to cut them out in a, hurry, in a hell of a hurry. And at the moment, I mean, it's nice to think that they're um, also sequestering carbon, but that's a two-edged sword. And, um, yeah, we only plant land and trees if we think that that's the best use of the land for production forestry. Carbon is a total bonus, if at all. And as I say, it's like rural Bitcoin. We don't trust it. And um, if it's there, we'll have it. Thanks very much. But um, it's candy floss business, really. Yeah. Agreed. Anything that can be, you know, created a legislated market, it can disappear just as fast. Yeah, and out yeah. here, we, we, you know, constantly, and I think across the country, we're heading about farmers diversify. Farmers do this off-farm income or on-farm forestry and so on. But you have done this for a long time, Mark, right from bottled water to four-wheel driving to writing a book. Oh. There is the, no one who can, uh, you know, speak more about diversification than you have. Oh, it has always worked out well. Uh, but, yeah, we've tried a lot of things. I'm, I'm very dyslexic, and so I've always got a left-hand view of things. I mean, one of the other ones that would have gone well but um, was a uh, – we had a perfume industry set up um, because New Zealand doesn't as yet produce a particularly successful woman's perfume in the, in the, tour, the market. So it said the, the, coming over here, the tourist would actually like to take back a memory of New Zealand. That's another story all in itself. Um, we went right down the track. We had it all sorted. We had the, the whole production system. We had women all lined up. The district girls were going to go pick, pick the certain flowers that we'd put in the cocktail um, at 5 o'clock in the morning, just on dewy mornings like they do in France. We had a French perfumer. We had the whole thing sorted. And then a friend of mine in the perfume industry showed me that the Chinese would um, make it artificially and blow us out of the water. So I just closed the file and put it in the bottom drawer. But it's still there. One day we'd like to have a go at that one. And I think that's a huge opportunity. But, um, yeah, there's been a few others that haven't gone so well. Well, you know, provenance uh, is uh, is part of your, your mix and provenance foods and provenance perfume. I don't see why not. I mean, I've had the same view about wine, uh, actually. Uh, Mark, you think about it. You could actually um, produce uh, wine a bit like... Um, uh, the impossible burger type meat. You could actually artificially produce wine, put the tasters in, add the alcohol, and jobs done. That's <laughs> not the way the world works. So all pad your arm with regard to um, the perfume. It's a great innovation. And I imagine have have you got into the manuka honey type business your way? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, manuka, we do a little bit of that, not much. Um, Peter Elworthy was always very encouraging because he was a great fan of the cabbage tree, as was Fiona Elworthy. And um, look, there's so many options. We, we've been, you know, the, the wine, I think I'm involved with Atkins Ranch, lucky enough to be the first, first sheep farm in the world for a very short time to get the GAF accreditation for Whole Foods. Um, and um, we're also lucky enough to be um, re uh, recognised as being regenerative because we're sequestering carbon and all the rest of it. One of our other little sidelines was a, we do have a, a lamb sub-brand called Owine. Not Ovine lamb, but Owine lamb. And these lambs come off a friend of mine's vineyard. I, we finished them on his vineyard. He has a very, very good little boutique wine. And so these lambs are marketed in that they have basically eaten the 
the, the, the clippings, the, the trimmings um, of the vines, and they basically come off the same terrain and all that stuff themselves. Um, so they're marketed to actually exactly grow with the wine because they fertilise the vines. That's a whole circular thing. And that's just another little sideline we like to play with. But my good friend Craig Hicks on the Progressive Beats, whatever, um, periodically we might sit around the fire with a few drinks and, and, and get lateral. And, and I'm always of the opinion that we have to market our lamb right up there with the best, to match the best of the wines, whether or not they're New Zealand wines or whether or not they're overseas. Um, uh, one of my little hairbrain screams have got laughed at a lot, but if people started to realise it's not silly, was the $1,500 lamb by 2028, $1,500 per lamb. Uh, that's another whole story about that one. But, you know, we're on track. We're not far off that. Yes, it doesn't happen perfectly, but it's not just about the meat, but it's about all the other byproducts of lamb. And I think we could do it. It won't be every lamb, but, you know, we reckon we could do it with a few. And that is some lateral thinking, but there's a, that's another whole story in its own. We're, get, we're getting off track again. I well, didn't warn you. No, no, well, we're sort of not getting off track because it's a really interesting story. I'm I'm big on uh, listening to people talking about brands. And um, it concerns me that everyone talks about brand New Zealand. But you're actually running uh, and, and you're, you're talking about individual brands to suit your outputs. And I think that's a massively different thing. And uh, all part of your arm, I'm very concerned about the noose that brand New Zealand puts around things. So, uh, you know, you know it's, it's a message that we need to talk about. Well, it's, it's a, a topic we need to talk about uh, more generally because every time I hear the Minister of Agriculture, it doesn't matter which party, talk about New Zealand Incorporated. They don't own anything. You've actually got skin in the game. They've got none. Um, and so... Yeah, I've sunk a fair bit of money into trying to trademark or I can't the words that you've done. Um, no, it's not it's trademark, another word for it that I want you to try and do. Um, was to own the IP on vegetable uh, vegetarian lamb and vegan lamb. Yeah. And they were laughed at me, full bore until they stopped to think about it. And I learned this from when I went doing cooking demos at Whole Foods in America. And I realized if you tell everyone they're vegetarian lambs, they sit up and listen. And one of the first said, are they made out of soy or something? And I know our lambs only eat, um, they only eat pure salt-laden, you know, seaside salad is, was our marketing point. The next week, I realised they're actually vegan lambs. They don't eat eggs, and they don't, well, they might eat worm eggs, but they don't eat eggs and other things like that. I got laughed out of the trades, trademarks office until I said to them, I said, of all your, they said, oh, but that implies it's made out of vegetables. I said, yeah, 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 but they eat vegetables. So you have vegetarians in your office, don't you? Yes. Ask them to put their hands up, look at them and say, you made out of carrots or you're skin and bone. At that point, they got a bit grumpy and they got difficult. But I actually believe, because a lot of lamb is feedlot around the world and they put other things in them other than pure grass fed, which is our great market point. Anyway, that's another whole story we can talk about how that was all going to work. But once again, I've still got a farm to run on. I've been, last couple of days I've been out driving post in the mud and sometimes I've got to stop dreaming and keep, keep, keep producing. So. Yeah. It's funny, about three Christmases back, um, we sat down to a, a dinner with my family, an extended family, and there was a leg of um, very nice uh, Central Otago lamb, uh, Wiltshire actually, lamb on the table, uh, that I was proudly uh, presenting. And I said, now, this is the ultimate herbivore lamb. 
uh, herbivore meat, sorry. And I got the weirdest looks from my uh, nieces and nephews. They just couldn't fathom what the old guy was talking about. So I think we're onto something and you're onto something there, Mark. Just keep it up. Well, look, if we go down another time, the, the $1,500 um, you know, lamb, but it's not just about meat. It's all the bioceuticals, all the rest of stuff in there, we're just throwing away. Um, you know, I mean, here's just one little bit of, tip, bit of information that people need to think about. The acrylic nail industry in New Zealand now, the girls who get all their nails done and, and it's a great booming industry, you know that is now greater than our um, strong, uh, strong bread, uh, um, strong wool industry. But one of the visions for our $1,500 lamp was to get Curatech to make these um, nails that apparently cost 200 bucks every couple of months. And instead of making them out of plastic, they'd be made out of natural keratin. And that way they can, they can be branded as natural nails. So, I mean, you know, the prophet, my, my great mentor and accountant, Peter Alexander, constantly reminds me there's profit and vanity. So, you know, another great friend of mine, Angela Payne, she's making um, bits of offal and guts into um, face cream for posh spice. And I know Angela's very successful. She wouldn't mind me saying, but if everyone knew what else Angela's achieved, their eyes would water. We've just got to see opportunities in places that, um, that people haven't looked before. Are you, Mark, are you perhaps talking about this lady? I seem to think I've heard of her. She was a wet nurse or something, and she has gone. She's somewhere around Vipokuro. Yeah, so she yeah. started off doing um, uh, at home as a farmer's wife, just doing fecal egg testing, and then yeah. she realized the market for um, sheep retinas. So she'd go down to the local um, Takapar Freezing Works and get all the old sheep heads thrown out, cut the eyes out, um, slice the retinas out and, and export them and started making money. And then she got into something else and something else and something else and something else. I don't think, and she's now got a company called AgriLab. Yeah. Very successful, um, very good businesswoman. Um, I don't think she might be saying, I think she's just bought her third farm and she now owns a vineyard in Otago as well. Very successful. Um, she just saw opportunities where other people haven't seen it. And um, they, you know, there's opportunity and, and, and waste quite often too so yeah she'd be worthy of an interview is it it's interesting you've bought out uh, keratin or keratech or, or whatever yeah keratin sorry and it's about 30 years ago that um i think it was garth carnaby came around new zealand telling us that uh the crossbred wool this is the answer we were going to and we were all oh phew, we finally got something that's going to be making some more money rather than putting it into broadland carpets until we found out very little was required um, and we never sort of heard much more about it. But it's only, it's interesting you bring it up because it's only last week I talked to Jaspreet about this very issue and I hadn't heard of the keratin process being uh, used since, actually. So good on you. Well, the keratin process, keratin, uh, sorry, keratin was a division, I think, of Ron's. Was that correct? Um, correct me if yes, I'm wrong. yes. And I do remember it being talked about being um, the, 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 the fibre was going to be ground down or reconstituted. But, you know, whether you make it into nails for the, you know, you've only got to look at every little nail bar on the main street. It's huge business. Um, or, you know, um, replacement bones or body parts or whatever. Um, you know, the opportunities there hugely. I had slightly tongue-in-cheek. I said, wouldn't it be easier if we just learnt, like Rutherford, to split the fibre? We'd take a... 36 micron fibre and split it in half and have two 18 micron fibres. Yes, they might be like half round posts. But of course, if the 18 micron is so highly valued, 
why doesn't someone just learn to slice up a, a 36 micron fibre and bobs your ankle? A little bit like slicing leather, you know, pelts and make it thinner. So there's another opportunity. Well, that was talked about a long, long time ago, believe it or not. I recall that sort of uh, probably 30 years back. But yeah, you're, you're the ideas, man. Got to keep keep them coming. Um, I think we all like hearing about them. Uh, but tell us a little bit more about your your uh, excursions into the mud and into the uh, into the trail blazing uh, with with four wheel drives. I mean, I remember as a teenager going to uh, swampy places in Southland and watching competitions. And all I remember was a whole lot of mud that you wouldn't be allowed to get. A, you're probably not even allowed to do it today. But it was big business then. You might How'd have you been, get on? If that was in the seventies and eighties, possibly um, it might have even been me in my early days. Um, look, interesting. So. Right back in the very word go, I think I was probably, I was challenged by trying to get a tricycle um, in Geraldine's for a muddy puddle, and I realised that the tricycle was getting, so I'd wrap mine to find around the tyres, and that was always a challenge. I wasn't so much about going faster, I just wanted to go further in the bog holes, and that, that, that just grew right up to the point I got involved in rallying and land, old Land Rovers, and then I built up a very successful Toyota Land Cruiser, which was purpose-built, that's when I was working at build tracks, and I had their big workshop, and um, you know, that, that was a major focus, won a couple of New Zealand titles. I was quite pleased that um, I think I won the V8 production modified class for New Zealand two years in a row. And that was with a six-cylinder Land Cruiser, that a, a very clever mechanic, Daniel Way, and now and fairly cool Peter Cook. He helped build the motor. It was a very powerful, very high-performance motor, <laughs> but it never used to last very long between rebuilds, but that motorsport, great fun. And then that was great. Um, Won lots of cups, um, had a lot of fun doing that as, in terms of forward drive rallying. Then it got to the point where I realised that um, I was getting a bit tired of that, realised I just had to rebuild all the time, so I stopped when I was at the top. Then I was approached to run forward drive training courses for a regional council, and then that grew into um, growing bigger and bigger and bigger, and I was approached by Mazda New Zealand to help launch their forward drive utes. That went really well. That came along at the time when I had a huge interest bill. So Mazda employed me as their four-wheel drive advisor. We ran four-wheel drive training courses all over New Zealand. And I sort of developed, I guess I formalised and wrote down on paper what most of us knew by sliding around in Land Rovers and making a lot of mistakes. And then I put it onto paper and wrote a bit of a book about it and developed the system. Then I got involved in Queenstown running Snowdice driver training up at the Remarkables and also at Snow Farm. That was more for... Snowpower drivers, police, first response people then, you know, the, the, the Audi one and that sort of thing has run up there now at the snow farm. But this was more for four-wheel drives and first response people, and that went really, really well. Gave me the the um, cash flow to be able to pay my interest bill until I cut trees down, basically. And that's become a really good little business. Um, it's just basically we saw a challenge on the farm and crisis and opportunity are equally weighted, and so we turned into a business. And, um, yeah, it's been a good one. And, I'm lucky enough that Mazda recognised my skills and then I got involved in working with Mazda Japan on developing, um, helping to fine-tune and develop some of the uh, Mazda Ford drive utes. Of course, they were also Ford Rangers in those days. Well, Mazda, they were made by Mazda. Ford was made, made Ford tough by Mazda, we used to say. So for a little boy who grew up in a vicarage on a tricycle dreaming about mud holes, be paid by Mazda to help um, do development on the utes and fine-tune them was a bit of an accomplishment. And um, 
there's been a few other manufacturers I work for, but yeah, it's, it's a bit of fun for a boy who just likes mucking around with engines and, and, and vehicles the workshop. And there's a bit more to that story, but yeah, you probably don't want to have time for it all now. <laughs> well, so, uh, we should remind listeners we are speaking to um, Mark Warren from Waipari Station, Waipari Station in Hawke's Bay. He's an entrepreneur and uh, I'm sure you've had support of uh, wife and family. I see someone... Uh, in the background of this this video that we do for this these recordings, so someone's there helping. I think guys probably having me on and, and, and to give me a bit of critiquing. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. But um, you know, as I say, you, it, 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 I was very lucky that John Falloon, who was also a great mentor, um, he did encourage me to write a book, and I said no, 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 no. And then and then poor John died, and I ignored it. And then a couple of years later, we're down at the farm. Uh, the Farm Awards, you know, the Century Farm Awards in Lawrence. And they said, well, your, your story is interesting. You're about to write a box. I thought, all right, I came home and um, set a task of writing a thousand words every morning before seven o'clock. And um, yeah, the rest was history. And um, it's been interesting. We'd rather like it, it. We think that it would be probably better in an audio book format, but that's a bit of a sticking point for the publishers at the moment. Um, I'm very, very dyslexic, and I think there's a lot of things that dyslexic people are very good at. They're not good at reading books. It's hard work. Um, but dyslexia is a great superpower if you can harness it. So I, that's one of my other little hobbies now is just encouraging dyslexic people to see their potential. Um, there's so many, you know, dyslexic people are knocked at school, but when they when they find their, find yes. their true worth, it's huge. And I could quote all sorts of figures that would astound you, but, yeah, there's another, there's another hobby horse at the moment. Right. And uh, I can uh, confirm what you just said. I have a mate who is dyslexic and the head he has for numbers this is just amazing. And from a <laughs> very, uh, very young age. Um, we, Mark, we, we have to remember numbers because we can't re- if we write them down, we can't read our own writing. <laughs> but this person could reel off, you know, I'm talking about seven digit landline numbers. He knew everyone's, everyone's numbers, literally, at the time when I used to carry around a little diary. Mark, I will ask you about the fact I saw you on a video with the Hawksway Regional Council, you know, uh, about their uh, partnership that they have, right tree, right place. And uh, and I'll say that here because out here we are seeing in Southland around where Don and I are, was swaths of even prime, prime pastoral land going into pines around here. Uh, how How has that program fared up at your corner of New Zealand? I think that is the mantra that we need to um, repeat and repeat and repeat. And it, 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 it breaks my heart to see the next door properties around me with loose end paddocks being planted in pine trees. And I accept that at the moment, that's economic return. Uh, that's following a market signal. There will be a time when it's going to be very hard to find store stock for the people on the flats to finish because the store country will go into trees. Most properties like ours, like Waikari, They've got a huge variation in the type of country. Some countries shouldn't be in livestock, it's too steep, and that should be in trees. Some country is probably a little bit, it's rough, but that's all right for putting breeding stock on, and some countries better for finishing. Stuff that you could get a, I say the finishing country, by and large, is stuff that you can get a direct drill over. Now, some people might get a bit scared, anything over, um, yeah, anything over about 35 degrees, there's a few issues there. We have a rule in the early days when we used to break in country. When we started rolling the direct discs, we used to have to back off. We learned never to disc into sheep tracks because the country would move. There's a whole lot of issues around that, but 
I think we need to get used to saying that these properties are multi-use. Not all for sheep cattle, not all for forestry, not all for cropping, but identify the parcels of land and develop it accordingly. Um, and, and we've had too much blanket planting. Yes, there's some issues of um, pine beetle, some rust. I was talking to our forestry contract today about it. You know, we could plant all these properties up in pines, get a dry season, get a hell of a forest fire, and be way, way, way worse off than ever we were before. So we need to have, um, you know, on, on Waipere, we, we focus on having a lot of green country between forestry blocks and fire breaks, um, partly for fire, but partly that slows our disease. It needs to be a very thought-out process. But at the moment, you know, as Bob Dylan said, money doesn't talk, it swears. And there's money investment available to plant trees in the ground, and um, that's what theoretically is going to be the return now. But you know, it's a long, it's a long game for us. And more and more, we also at the same time are hearing of you know headlines like this one I saw today: forestry contractors at breaking point at flood hit areas. And you, most of your posts over the last, I'd say since March, since Gabriel. I've seen you rallying around, trying to do what you can, and otherwise trying to, you know, marshal up forces there. Tell us a bit more about that, Mark, especially how uh, things have been in the last quarter. Oh, you mean about the forestry contractors or what we've been uh, about? Both of those, how, you know, the general uh, area. Well, and con- I, I feel very, very, very sorry for the forestry contractors. They're a cash flow business. They've got huge money tied up in machinery and wages. And when things go well, it's great. Uh, the forestry people make... If you look at a pine tree, um, the, the the people freighting it to the port get probably about a quarter. The um, uh, the, the forestry contract gets somewhere around a third. Um, you know, and and and, and the, the um, some of the other costs. And, and if you're lucky, the, the grower might get you know a little bit more than a third, um, depending on how far away where the forestry take uh, where the freight takes that up. The the poor old forestry contractors, yes, they get a hard time because all of a sudden we go, no, it's not worth harvesting, that come back next year. And they've got all this gear that they're paying payments on and staff. Uh, this year, of course, being blocked out of forestry blocks because access was a problem, was, a, was very challenging. Probably it was, um, it was, it wasn't nice, but they had the opportunity to go and cut down all the wind throw stuff over in um, Turingi. My, I know one of our contractors went over and did that. That kept them in business. Um, so that, that's been a, it's a tough haul, and we do need them. Um, in our own situation, we've just been chewing away trying to get access open. The first week or two, it was just hopeless. It was so wet and so slippy. On our on Waipere, we were only impacted on the back country. The front country got about 110 mils. It went over our bridge by about two metres, and <coughs> typical flood. But the back country got about 400, and that was probably as badly hit. As, as some of the worst parts of Hawke's Bay. We'd actually had a digger out there from Cyclone Harley um, digging up, opening up culverts, salvaging bridges and clearing tracks. Luckily, he left his digger up on a ridge and Cyclone um, Gabriel hit and he just went round and did it all over again, although this time some of the culverts he'd put in, we couldn't even find them. Um, so opening up access is the number one thing. We had to wait a while till it dried out, because otherwise it's like trying to shovel porridge with a fork. You just waste a lot of diesel, a lot of energy. Then getting essential fencing um, back up and running. 
And that was a tough call because you're wandering around in mud, stock you're going everywhere, hard to maintain. We've been very lucky. We had a lot of grass this year, so that took away some of that stress. Um, and then the last two or three weeks, I've been out with a track and post driver, just driving in post wherever I could to resurrect um, fences. And they're not the straightest fence of the world, but the key word is stock roof. But yeah, that's been the main focus, um, rebuilding the approaches to our bridge and all that sort of thing. It gets you down a bit when you're looking at broken stuff. But, you know, I call it eating the elephant. We start at the trunk. I reckon we're into the rump at this stage. Uh, it'll slow down a bit when we have to face eating the elephant's bum. But, um, you know, we're making progress and it's it's hard work. But, you know, I must admit, my mate Stephen Harris, who's admitted he's retired, um, I feel it when I come in at night. I've been humping around posts and wandering around and, and that. You start to feel it a wee bit. And, um, but never mind, it's pretty healthy stuff. I lost the weight lately, so that's probably a good thing. There's always crisis. Crisis and opportunity are always equally weighted. Yeah, well, and, and the other side of this is if there is a silver lining, uh, and, and sorry, this is not my, meant to uh, make light of everything you've faced, is uh, I assume the tax man's going to get less next year. Uh, that will be for sure. And that's actually a really good point that people need to understand, that with the cost of fertiliser, the cost of labour, the cost of farm inputs, uh, we've, you know, you have a, a production curve, an economic production curve, where if you produce more at the marginal cost of production, you know, if it gets it gets to a certain point where it's just not worth producing more, we've actually shifted hugely on that the 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 production curve. We will be producing probably ten or fifteen percent less this year because of the input costs. It's just not worth putting on fertilizer at these prices. It's not worth employing labour at the price they want and the productivity they're offering. Uh, we go, no, we just we'll just plant trees <laughs> and grow less food and grow less vegetables. You know, we're growing meat. Some people are growing vegetables. It's it, there's going to be much much less tax paid. But you know, I was at a MPI. It was a meeting about cyclone recovery today, and I thought very well run meeting. Sadly, there were more officials there than farmers, but very well run, great resources. <coughs> and the point about the um. You know, the $10,000 that some farms got was raised. You know, that was very gratefully received, but you got it whether you're 300 acres or 3,000. The point there to remember is that for every dollar that's invested on a farm ends up at somewhere around $7 in the uh, province and around $11 for the New Zealand economy. So, um, you know, having an input of cash at this point, <coughs> it's pretty essential to get things up and running because most people are just running out of steam at the moment. And doesn't doesn't it make you uh, question things when you hear about productivity of government? And you've just talked about a meeting in uh, Elsorp today where there was um, more bureaucrats uh, and officials, as good as they, as you say, you commended them, but there's more of them than real people doing uh, real work at the coalface. Yeah, yeah. Look, they, look, they're all really top people. And I wouldn't for a minute. They're all most of them good friends of mine. I wouldn't call them bureaucrats. I'm actually glad for them they're getting some government money, but the ones in Wellington, particularly envy on, on the challenges they give us when we do our ETS return, I'm sure there's a whole crew of people down there. Well, actually, we're more than sure we've got the factual evidence through our people who do our forestry, our ETS return from. They, they see their whole job is trying to deny us um, land that we planted trees that, that, that actually is, is um, uh, registrable for the ETS from post-1989 trees. In fact, we've got one map where they must have been doing it at lunchtime and they got sick of it 
where they went round the whole block of forestry to about two thirds way through, and then oh, hang on, I blocked them. Somebody else is trying to get me. Um, and they um, they just drew a straight line across the across the block of forestry and excluded a whole lot of trees that were absolutely viable simply because they wanted to knock off and 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 go and have coffee somewhere. That's a lot of money to us. And when challenged, they didn't have an answer for that one, but they had another issue where I said, hang on, why have you chopped that lot out? Oh, with a satellite told us that some vegetation. I said, here's the photographic evidence. That was in Tarweni that grows no, no taller than about a foot. After three years, they accepted that they were wrong, but they said, oh, well, you've missed out that whole five-year period of carbon um, allocation. And I said, well, yes, that's financially expensive for us. But think what that's doing to the carbon, um, you know, the carbon numbers for New Zealand. You know, this because we've actually got a situation where it's theoretical being carbon green. It's actually on what the carbon we can count. So they're actually rejecting a whole lot. Bureaucrats are just making the job impossible, and that's why we're giving up, losing hope. And I'm pretty sure not. I'm pretty sure not one of those bureaucrats who, you know, uh, walked off that day would have missed filing in uh, their uh, reimbursements, be it for that coffee or that uh, the whole day or the fuel to get there. It's it's amazing how much money is being wasted. Uh, it's absolutely sickening the wastage that's going on to the point where we're actually focusing on trying to survive in a less cash economy, less money economy. And we're building a community around here. We're very much more on... on um, uh, building a community which barters things and swaps things rather than getting cash into the equation and, and we wouldn't want the IRD to uh, take too much focus on that but it's all, it's all I think, quite above board. Um, but I did threaten to go to Wellington and march up with some of these people and oh, we've had situations where that's happened before and I've been asked to gently keep right out of the way or I'd, I'd blow it. But these people have proven, I mean, I've spoken to them, they've just got no idea whatsoever. They're the ones that need to be made to go hungry and cold. End of argument. Or they can mm -hmm. come out and see me. If they want to front up, they can come and see me. I'd welcome them. They'd take them out the back. And, and if they still keep wanting to argue, well, they can walk home. It's a bloody long way. There's a massive disconnection uh, between uh, some people in urban New Zealand, not all, a lot of people in urban New Zealand, and the realities of, of farming. And as we talked about last week on the show, um, the, the observation that I make is that the the, the balance is it's out of balance. The the, uh, the the machinery of the country, the admin of the country through government and local government, is just taking far too much of the uh, earnings capacity out of real people doing real stuff. Uh, and I don't know how we stop it, Mark, but uh, change of a change of government may help. But uh, that's not the whole answer. That government has got to actually stand tall and do what they know is right. No, you're quite right. Okay, so stage one, um, we need to back um, both national and act together. And stage two, that these characters have to be shown that they're not productive and they're con a lot of them are contractors. They're um, given no more contract. They're sold. That's it. That's the end of the job. And you're going to have to be cold and hungry um, to realise where your income comes from and you're going to realise who pays your wages and you might have to go into the, in, out into the economy, out into the country, I mean, and actually face um, doing something productive. Interestingly, a friend of mine who's got a very highly qualified son um, was spending time in London recently, couldn't get a job. He's, he's got financial training, couldn't get a job in London 
um, in the finance area, which is unusual. So he's gone back to his roots. He's out going back out, out into the country in in, um, uh, in England and driving tractors because he couldn't get a job in finance. Well, that sort of thing's got to happen in, in Wellington sooner rather than later. Um, and, and, and it could be that we've got to help that happen in a fairly unconventional way, but we won't elaborate that in public. We won't mm. warn them. I attended a, a meeting recently, you know, this was with uh, Fulton Hogan, and it was a public meeting, there's a whole lot of people there. So the gentleman in charge mentioned that if Fulton Hogan, they are, uh, you know, sort of assessing a project worth 50 million, he says 10%, five to seven million of that, at least he says is now what consents cost us. Yeah. And he said, we are doing a whole lot of partnerships and social licenses stuff that is feel good, but doesn't really add to the bottom line. But in his words, he said, we have to do this because we think we might as well spend money and time there because otherwise we spend it in litigation because, and there was a whole lot of people from local government there. He says, because you guys make it really hard for us. Yeah, well, actually my theory is that uh, the balanced payments situation is getting so dire that the incoming government might actually... Um, Think to impose a national state of emergency, and as I understand it, all of these rules go out the bloody window under a state of emergency. There be won't be any road cones. There'll be hovers only when you work around high, um, heavy machinery. Common sense will rule, and bureaucrats will be down down the river by, like red tape. And you know, if we declare a state of emergency like a war, it'll be those who have the capability to get get the job done, and those people that stand in the way will become basically just steamroller fodder. Is that interesting, Mark, how um, New Zealand farmers have lifted their game so much uh, uh, since 85, since uh, 84, 85, when you started, uh, their production and their product productivity, um, doing more with less or the same, is outstanding. And of course, those uh, people we're just talking about know that every year we've got a bit of a, a problem to, to meet our commitments. We'll just do better. And if you see the figures for this year, uh, we've got goods uh, exports from farms have increased 7 billion to 73 billion. Uh, at the same time, we've just had our fourth um, quarter of deficits. So I think the worst current account deficit ever in New Zealand, 33 billion. So the harvest from the environment is paying all the bills. At the same time, these very people are telling us we're using the environment too much. I put it to you. Who is putting the pressure on the environment? Who is putting the most pressure on the environment? It's not the people you're selling to. It's happening by our own people in suits. Oh, actually, you know what? The, the biggest enemy or the, the greatest pollution uh, is people on those terrible big bloody feedlots called cities. And, and if they <laughs> had consent, had that many people in a, consent, in a small area, I think we should turn it around and make all cities and governments have to put their resource consent to live in a city and, and learn to move out the country and be productive. Now, that's one area that we could play them their own game. Um, you know, and, and clearly, we're going to have to incentivise exports and wallop the people who just think, oh, we can just buy a whole new bloody iPhone for last, last week's models about out, out of favour. Um, we, we, we've got to have a real economic crash whereby uh, those people who generate foreign exchange and for the country are well rewarded and not penalised, um, you know, perhaps we should, and I know it would be a tricky one now we've got a frozen dollar, perhaps we go back to the days when we had overseas funds, um, farmers who generate income can have the money offshore, 
And um, that might that might make people start sit up and think a little bit. And I'm not saying just farmers, primary producers. There are some exporters as well on the same boat. But people just don't seem to understand the basics of economics. That you, if you keep spending more than you earn, eventually you'll go hungry and get sold up. And yeah, yeah. other other things have stopped me on that one. Yeah. And there's nothing like an economic reality check. And uh, boy, are we facing that 40%. Uh, they say it's a 40-year high farm inflation right now. So you gentlemen, you know, you've, you've lived through it. And we are back. Does it, do you see, feel a sense of deja vu, either of you, Don, Mark, that where are we's farming back again in New Zealand? Well, in terms of the inflation, because mm-hmm. I'm a, I said, you know, I, I survived the 80s. I learned mm-hmm. to survive that by not spending. When it was too dear, I said, no, I'm not buying it. End of argument. And I'd keep the old one and I'd straighten it and repair things. And, and you know, we've cut, we've, we cut right back on fertiliser. Um, you know, and the, we go, oh, we've got some thistles. We're not going to spray them. Too expensive. We're not going to put that extra crop in to finish stock. It wasn't worth it last spring with the cost of diesel and tractors. Um, you know, employing extra labour to, to get a bit more productivity. Nah, we're just not going to do it. Um, you know, there are uh, interest rates is a real pain. We're lucky we're not probably too exposed, but you know, we've gone from sort of two and a half, three percent, which was very cheap money, I might add, to say seven or eight percent in, in within six or eight months. Now that's hurting a lot of people I know, and that's going to continue to hurt. So, I think the only way to bring these people um, to their senses, and I'm sorry, but it's it's reality. Um, hunger and start, hunger and cold. End of argument. Once you're cold and hungry, you'll work harder. You know, I know that's harsh, and, and I'll probably get shot for it. But hey, it's reality. Well, I, I certainly know uh, that that going through the '80s does um, still sit with me um, in my th- thought process. I do waste a bit of money nowadays because I sort of don't. I'm not really farming anymore, but. Um, yeah, I think the the biggest thing, the biggest lesson I had out of the eighties was not to invest in machinery uh, that you didn't need. Um, make sure you use contractors more. I know that that's uh, perhaps not possible in your neck of the woods, but um, I I was so tempted to buy machinery. To God, I saw neighbours buying machinery, and I was desperate to have this machinery. No, we just tolerated the old one till about nineteen ninety nine, sort of thing, and. That's that was the saviour. If I'd bought metal, I would have been on my ear and out the gate gone. Um, I think that, that my great mentor and, and, and accountant for virtually all my life, um, he's, we started to push him into a bit of well in time at Peter Alexander in Christchurch. So he calls it heavy metal or iron disease. And the beauty mm. of using a contractor is you look at it and go, oh, gee, that's expensive. Bugger that. I'm not going to do that again. So you don't do it. Go, I'm not going to put that crop in. Whereas if you've got all your own gear, and yes, I've got a bit of our own gear because I buy the cheaper, small stuff at clearing sales and patch it using, using our own mild engineering skills. But, um, you know, each, each to their own. Um, but I see some people just spending so much money and, and um, it's not the interest bill they have to worry about. It's the paying it back and it's the depreciation on it. I mean, I see a hell of a lot of people borrowing money to buy depreciating assets to try to prove it prove how wealthy they are and that doesn't tell you in my view but I'm, I'm probably too old school and people grizzle at me oh, they, they, save 50 cents save 50 cents oh, it's only 50 cents but I said yeah but when I was young I saved 50 cents every 50 cents saved was a pine tree that's 150 bucks now or it normally is so 
you know, uh, yeah. Uh, the cost of money is something that in the last 10 or 15 years people probably get a bit lax about. They don't understand the rule of 72. Um, the rule of 72 is if you decide, divide 72 by the interest rate you're paying, or might, that'll tell you how many years it's going to take for your debt to double. So many people don't understand that concept. Oh, that's that's music to my ears. Yeah, so many people don't understand that. And I feel very, you know, small in stature next to you two guys farming careers, but I, I've been here 14 into 15 years in New Zealand. I remember in 2009 coming in, the minimum wage was $13.25. I started at $13.50. Today, with the way, you know, they have moved on the median wage and so on, for anyone who comes out on a work visa, say like me, and then obviously it spreads across the industry because you can't have one worker at this level, one at another. It's $29 plus holiday pay. So there's something like $32 an hour. Now the milk price hasn't gone up that much, but your wages have gone up two and a half times. FERT is up 400% from the time I did accounts for our first boss in Otrohonga, circa 2009 to 2014. There is not a lot falling out at the bottom, and yet we have our ministers waxing lyrical about how well the food and fiber sector is doing, how well the commodity prices are doing. Let's do a little more, you know, uh, talk about, uh, do a little more work on our methane or carbon emissions, and we will be able to sell our story. Well, if you can't bloody sell it now, then God help us. Seriously. Yeah, um, I think there's, um, the concept of economic wisdom is, is, is very lacking in, in New Zealand politics at the moment. And, and I, you know, uh, I, I just struggle. I mean, tell me, how many people on the front page of, front bench of Cabinet now have actually ever done a PAYE or a GST return? I just don't think they understand business. I don't think, and I think their calculators have been too. I just don't think they get there. I just can't understand how they think it works. But that's right, we're going to solve that in October. <laughs> yeah, well, we are. And, you know, the strange thing about uh, Jaspreet, going back to your comment then, uh, farmers aren't like other businesses that just close down and go over go overseas. I mean, it has happened before, like, uh, for instance, South African farmers went to Western Australia or came to New Zealand. Uh, but not you don't often see New Zealand farmers leaving here, shutting down and moving their business somewhere else. And farms going to rack and ruin someone always comes in and, and buys them and does something with them sometimes for the better actually uh but that's the thing we're we're captive in our own country uh we're not going to be um we're not going to move our capital elsewhere easily so we're sort of a captive audience to to the um to the executive um powers and but it is about respect and they i think it's time uh the disconnection that's been almost encouraged since the year 2001 when the Dirty Dairying campaign got underway by Fish and Game and others, uh, that division that created, that disconnected, that created. It's time that we got our respect back and we were allowed to regain our mojo and feel good about um, the stuff we do. And I think listening to, to Mark, clearly Mark's been a, um, a fighter, a battler, and you've tried to stay above it. You just just move on through is what I think I'm getting from you, Mark. You just move on through. Well, I think there's time for um, Dewey rather than Huey. And basically, um, you know, there's one people, one way to people bring people to their senses, that's make them a bit lean and hungry. And, and, and there's, you know, people in the cities think, oh, no, it's all right, you know, I can sell this or sell that. But, but they must be made to realise where does the money come from um, which 
you know, imports the goods that they want to live on. And I think a lot of people do realise that, but I still think there's a lot that don't. Um, and we can tell, we've been trying to tell them, they don't want to listen. So we'll, I think actions will speak rather words. If we stop spending, which is what farmers are doing now, I mean, I, I, I'm not going to field days. I didn't go, I, oh, this is the first year I didn't go to the central district field days. Um, I think our, we're buying very, very little at the moment. I've put the handbrake on spending, no new items, cut back on a lot of inputs simply to make sure that we balance the budget and, um, you know, and, and, and we keep our banking arrangements. Um, you know, we don't want the bank saying, oh, you spent too much because that's the next thing that's going to happen. Um, and all of a sudden they're going to go, oh, not much tax take. And the other thing that they haven't worked out is that when you plant a block in forestry, you get no income for 25 years. So there's going to be no tax from that. And the other thing they've overlooked is that even though it's in carbon, and after four or five years, you might be able to sell some carbon credits, you can't, gen you can't um, generate foreign exchange out of carbon credits because it's still within New Zealand transaction. So hang in there, farmers. Hang in there to the productive sector. Trim your sales, only essential spending. Listen to Peter Alexander's wisdom and pull the handbrake on another two notches on expenditure. But you know, at the end of the day, farmers can live well you know, we can plant, we can put the plough on and plant our own spuds. We live well on, you know, we grow our own food. Um, you know, luck, most farmers hopefully keep away from the three waters concept. I've lost track of where that is. We harvest our own rainwater, our own spring water. We dig our own septic tanks and um, we, we just need to keep independent of bureaucracy if possible and be prepared to put up a big, big, um, a big gate to stop them getting onto the property if we have to. And with that, listeners, I think that's a very good time to uh, to end this hour with Mark Warren. Um, it's been great to have you, Mark. You're an enthusiast. Uh, you've done a lot in your life. You're entrepreneurial. Um, it's a it's it's great to have you on um, Greenwashed, and um, we may have to get you back, perhaps after October. <laughs> I'll see what happens then. Oh well, that's great chatting. Thanks very much. Thanks yeah, for that, listening. Thank I'll you. Thank you. Yeah, I don't believe in packaging it too politely if it needs to, you know, that the greatest thing you can do if someone's an idiot is to, is to um, explain to them sooner rather than later so they get a chance to change their ways. Couldn't, couldn't agree more. Uh, listeners, that was Mark Warren, farmer from Bapari Station, Central Hawks Bay. For anyone who is a keen off-roader, uh, off his book is Many a Muddy Morning, Stories from a Life Off-Road and On the Land. Thank you so much. But today, how to survive high interest rates and a downturn in the economy. More to the point than just playing in the mud. So, yeah, <laughs> multi-useful. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much, Mark. Okay. Just Breed Boparai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio.